Good morning. Uh, would you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians and chapter 1. As you turn there, I just want to say what a delight, a privilege, and an honor it is to be with you all and uh, to serve you as we think about the Lord Jesus Christ and His cross together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm not going to exposit this text, but I want to read it to orient our hearts and our minds to the subject matter at hand. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Skip to chapter 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, cause us with eyes of faith to behold your glorious Son and his glorious cross. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Rupa lives in a highly unreached region in the nation that I'm from. Like most people in that region, she was a practicing Hindu. About five years ago, she came into contact with a couple of believers in Christ and started visiting church with them. As she attended the local church there and heard the pastor preaching through 1 Peter, she came under conviction of her sin, realizing her guilt before the one true God, her creator and judge. She heard the gospel of Christ crucified in the place of sinners, punished under the wrath of God, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. By God's sovereign grace, Rupa repented of her sins, put her trust in Christ, and she counted the cost as she did so. And indeed, it was a heavy cost. Her new religion brought great shame to her family. After she was baptized, she was rejected by her in-laws with whom she'd been living for the past two decades. She was rejected by her husband who began to beat her, often severely, to the point where for her own safety, she had to be separated. She moved out of the house 
and he immediately divorced her and married another woman, bringing even greater shame upon Rupa, making her a pariah in society. She lost face, experienced shame and dishonor in the community, lost her means of supporting herself, and lost her earthly family in coming to Christ. But she is not ashamed. For in Christ, she has gained forgiveness of her sins, a right standing before God, our righteous judge, a spiritual family in the local church, and the hope of eternal honor in God's heavenly kingdom, where she will forever behold her Savior in glory. Rupa lives in what many missiologists and anthropologists call an honor and shame culture. Honor and shame cultures are collectivistic cultures. They prize societal approval and relational harmony. Violating community expectations or showing disloyalty to your family draws shame and disgrace, like in Rupa's case. Conforming to social standards advances your reputation and your honor. So it's kind of like a social credit score. Loyalty and reputation are of utmost importance. And one of the prevailing ideas in missions today is that the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, the idea that on the cross Jesus died as a substitute facing judicial condemnation, bearing the punitive wrath of God for the sins of his people, that doctrine, they say, will not work in such cultures. A number of theologians and so-called missions experts, uh, let's call them the honor-shame missiologists, they do one or more of three things. Some of them reject penal substitution entirely, claiming that it's rooted in Western culture and irrelevant for such societies. Others relativize penal substitution. They say that's just one atonement theory among many, and we should not present it as the correct interpretation of the cross. Let it take its place alongside the other metaphors that are equally important. And then a third category of these missiologists redefine penal substitution entirely to give it a new and completely different meaning. Friends, I was born, raised, born again, and lived over half my life in an honor and shame culture in South India. I currently pastor in the Middle East, also an honor-shame culture, with members of my church from 45 different nationalities, many of whom come from honor-shame cultures, and I'm here to tell you that these missiologists are dead wrong. <laughs> these ideas attack the sufficiency of the gospel and empty the cross of its power. Now certainly the categories of honor and shame, these are realities in the world's culture, they are realities in God's word itself, which is filled with honor and shame. So it's important and necessary and helpful to understand shame and honor biblically and culturally as we seek to proclaim the gospel. But we must not compromise the glorious gospel of penal substitutionary atonement in the process because penal substitution is the biblically revealed heart of the gospel message. It is the center of the story. It is the sun around which all the other metaphors for the cross orbit. It is the hub on the bicycle tire that holds all the spokes in place. And so my goal this morning, dear brothers and sisters, is that you would leave here with absolute confidence in the gospel of penal substitution. Now what do I mean by penal substitution? I mean the gospel truth that our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate, in fulfillment of the plan of the triune God, died 
a substitutionary death under the wrath of God, paying the penalty for the sins of his people by taking upon himself our punishment, thus accomplishing redemption, granting forgiveness of sins, and a right standing before God our judge to all who repent and believe. Friends, I want you to leave here with an unshakable confidence that this gospel and no other must be faithfully proclaimed in every nation under heaven until Jesus returns in glory. Because it's the only gospel that can save sinners like Rupa. And it's the only gospel that can save sinners like you and me. I'm going to ask and answer four questions through the rest of our time to help convince you of this fact. Question number one, what do the honor-shame missiologists say about penal substitution? What do they say? Uh, I told you they either reject, relativize, or redefine penal substitution when they talk about the atonement. So let me give you an example of each of these. Our first example is a missiologist named Mark Baker. In 2000, together with a New Testament scholar, Joel Green, he wrote a book called Recovering the Scandal of the Cross. And in that book, they say that penal substitution is alien to scripture. These are their words. They say it's bizarre, it's barbaric. They call it, and I quote, a cultural product of life in the West that conforms to late 19th century American notions of justice, end quote. Their key thesis is that the biblical authors don't address how Christ's death brings salvation. They say that it was capable of multiple interpretations. And, of course, they apply this to honor and shame cultures like Japan and say we need to reframe the meaning of the cross. This Mark Baker later authored a book with another very popular missiologist these days named Jason Georges. And he's example number two. And their book was titled Ministering in Honor and Shame Cultures. Now, Jason Georges doesn't reject penal substitution entirely. He relativizes it. He says that, you know, Augustine and Luther and their experience of introspective guilt have shaped Western theology. He says this, and I quote, emphasis on the legal aspects of salvation stem from a Western gospel. The problem is when we rehash theology and practices developed in guilt-based Western cultures, for ministry in Eastern, shame-based cultures. He says, I quote, penal substitution is not wrong so much as it is incomplete and a problem when we absolutize this theology contextualized in the West, elevate it to the level of biblical truth and export it internationally, leading to a type of theological cultural colonialism, end quote. He has a popular website called honorshame.com where he advocates his views, and he has an article there called uh, Jesus' Death for Muslims, where he sets forth a so-called Muslim theology of Jesus' death, and he says, penal substitution, I quote, carries little significance for Muslims who do not feel guilt for failing to maintain an absolute standard, end quote. Now, you might be familiar with his name. Jason Georges has written one of the most popular books today on this subject called 3D Gospel, and it's being used by some of the largest missions agencies in the world to train their missionaries. It's being translated into other languages and exported to the mission field to train indigenous workers. It's even used in missionary training in reformed evangelical churches. And the thesis of that book is this, he says, 
quote, each culture accepts a particular conceptual metaphor as most plausible. People can better understand salvation in Christ when we use the language of culturally plausible metaphors. So in a guilt, innocence culture, he says in the West, okay, you preach penal substitution. But in a honor and shame collectivistic culture, they need a community encounter. So you preach of God's inclusion of us in his family by Jesus taking away our shame and showing honor to God on our behalf. Now in the year 2019, four years ago, my beloved colleague Anand Samuel and I uh, sought to address some of the issues with this approach in an online article on shame and honor and penal substitution. And we were surprised by the blowback that we received uh, a um, missiologist, now this is the third name I'm going to mention, a very popular missions guru named Jackson Wu. Uh, he's authored some books that have made waves, book, a book called Saving God's Face, uh, another book called Reading Romans with Eastern Eyes. Jackson Wu started writing a series of blog articles uh, attacking what we said. Well, to our surprise, we soon found out Jackson Wu doesn't have eastern eyes. Jackson Wu is actually a white American named Brad Vaughn, who wanted to teach us about honor and shame. <laughs> now, Brad Vaughn not only relativizes, but also entirely redefines penal substitution beyond recognition. He has published a new book called The Cross in Context, and in this book, on the meaning and significance of the cross, he claims that the Bible doesn't give us recipes for the meaning of the cross. It gives us ingredients, and we can put together those ingredients to create a whole new set of recipes. And through revisionist interpretation of several key texts, he comes up with a whole new set of recipes indeed. Except the smell and the taste of those recipes are not biblically palatable. So here are a few choice quotes from his book, from Brad Wan. There is no single explanation, he says, in scripture concerning how Christ achieves atonement on our behalf, end quote. Next, he says, the simple fact that God shows wrath against sin does not necessarily imply that he must punish sinners for every one of their sins. In the Bible, we cannot find any verse that explicitly states that God's wrath is poured out on Christ. We have no reason to say that a substitute vicariously receives the punishment otherwise due to the guilty party. End quote. He also says, We have long focused on punishment as the dominating theme of atonement, drowning out other biblical themes. Perhaps this is where we have gone wrong when talking about atonement. Might we do better to magnify how Christ sets the world right by becoming a holy reparation? Restoring to God what is his, end quote. A holy reparation? Now that sounds like a pretty woke Western recipe to me. <laughs> Vaughn claims to affirm penal substitution. He claims that he affirms penal substitution, but not its logic. He says, watch how he redefines the term. He says, Jesus pays our penalty by dying, but does not receive our punishment. According to Vaughan, Jesus' death is an expression of honor to God, of devotion to God, therefore satisfying the debt of honor that we failed to show, but he explicitly argues there is no sense of punishment in the atonement. Now, if you're familiar with the debate around the new perspective on Paul, it won't surprise you that both Jason Georges 
and Brad Vaughn, formerly known as Jackson Wu, are significantly influenced, they are significantly influenced and explicitly affirm the tenets of the new perspective, which is a movement that claims that Protestant theology has placed too much emphasis on the Bible's legal categories and that the reformed doctrine of justification by faith alone is a product of Western ideas of law and justice. You know, in 1996, McDonald's opened their first restaurant in my home country of India. And the question they were faced with is, how do you sell beef burgers, if you can call them that, <laughs> to a culture where 80% of the people are vegetarians? Well, to do that, you've got to contextualize. And that's what they did. They came up with the Maharaja Mac. <laughs> Two chicken or veggie patties between three slices of bread with a mint sauce, and guess what? It worked. <laughs> Today there are McDonald's restaurants all over India. Just like McDonald's invented the Maharaja Mac for India, these missiologists cook up their ideas with the praiseworthy goal of reaching unreached peoples in honor and shame cultures. But as my friend Anand Samuel says, when such faulty theological ideas are conceived, they give birth to flawed theories. And flawed theories, when fully grown, bring forth defective methodologies in the field of Christian missions. Friends, we, as we seek to reach others, we must carefully proclaim the gospel according to scripture rather than creatively reframing the gospel according to culture. We must proclaim the cross without emptying it of its biblical meaning and power. We must serve up 100% Kobe Wagyu beef burgers from God's word. <laughs> not, a, not a cheaply contextualized veggie burger. The goal of missionaries, as Ed Burns says, is not to simply relevantly contextualize the gospel, but rather the goal is to rightly communicate the gospel, which brings us to our second question today. We've seen what the honor-shame missiologists say. Next, let's consider how we must do theology. That's the second question. How must we do theology? You know, when I'm teaching my uh, beginning theology students first semester, my pastoral interns, uh, one exercise that I have them do repeatedly, uh, week after week throughout the first semester, is I ask them all to pick up their Bibles and hold them like this, over their heads. Hold your Bible on your, over your head. Hold it there for just a little longer. And it's my way of reminding them that the Bible is sufficient, it is clear, and it is authoritative over all our cultures, over our worldviews, over our value systems, our ideas, and our feelings. And our goal must be to ever conform all our thinking to God's inspired word, to bow our theological knees to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. From scholars in the ivory towers of the West to illiterate tribes in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, through the ages, across the centuries, across every culture, across the inhabited world, the Bible is alive and active. It is personal and powerful with the power to give life to the dead, to bring sinners from darkness to life light and to make dead sinners alive to the living God. So as we come to scripture, our task 
brothers and sisters, is to read the Bible on its own terms and in its own categories and framework. We must not impose an extra biblical worldview on the text of Scripture and reshape its message. This is one of the serious shortcomings of the honor-shame missiologists. They want us to look at the culture and the context on the mission fields and then to put on cultural lenses by which we interpret the Bible and understand the meaning of the cross. And as a result, we end up with a so-called Muslim theology of Jesus' death or even bizarre theologies like Jesus being the chicken of God whose feathers covered our shame. Friends, our work in understanding and proclaiming Christ crucified demands exactly the opposite. If we read with cultural lenses, we are sure to distort the meaning of the cross rather than to faithfully declare it. And of course it's true, all of us, let's not deny it, we come to the Bible with our own cultural lenses, but the Bible is the one book that has the power to act upon us and correct our lenses. Friends, the message of the cross, when viewed with cultural lenses, is foolishness to those who are perishing. And so we don't want to confirm people in their foolishness. We want them to be saved by our foolish message, by the power of the cross. So instead of reading the Bible with cultural lenses, we seek to correct the culture with biblical lenses. And we do that by doing rigorous biblical theology. We understand God's self-revelation, His plan of redemption from garden to glory, and then from within the structures and categories of Scripture, of biblical revelation, we strive to think God's thoughts after Him and declare the whole counsel of God as we apply the Word to the world through a biblical and confessional systematic theology. As my professor Stephen Wellam says, we engage in a worldview conflict. We set a biblical worldview over and against other worldviews. Our task as theologians is not to adapt the biblical revelation to other cultural standards, but to bring a biblical worldview to bear on contrary ones. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, by divine power, we tear down strongholds, even cultural ones, destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to Christ. Ironically, the honor-shame missiologists shy away from penal substitution, saying that it creates theological and cultural colonialism in honor and shame cultures. But don't miss the irony. They have unwittingly created a new kind of theological colonialism. They export a culture-oriented way of reading the Bible that is distinctively Western and postmodern in its flavor. They profess to make the Bible more accessible to foreign cultures while they impose upon the Bible a postmodern reader response approach that is both foreign to Scripture itself and to the people they're trying to reach. Likewise, using the language of honor and shame, they have smuggled in the so-called new perspective on Paul, which is another movement that, as Michael Kruger says, distinctively reflects the current emphasis in Western culture inclusion, breaking barriers, rather than talking about the guilt of sin. So that leads to our third question this morning. We've seen what the honor-shame missiologists say. We've talked a bit about how we should approach the theological task. Now we seek to articulate a theology of the cross. Question three is, how must we understand the cross? 
in Scripture, God gives us His own interpretation of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He reveals to us in His inspired, inscripturated Word, not just the images for what Christ has done, but how all those images fit together. He gives us the central image that helps us make sense of the entire portrait. He doesn't just give us ingredients for atonement theology, leaving us to figure out the recipes ourselves. He gives us His recipe. He shows us how those ingredients must be put together to savor the feast of Christ's atoning work. So what is the biblical recipe? Well, four steps. And we begin where the Bible begins, with creation and God. The biblical story starts by presenting God as creator and Lord over heaven and earth. He is a God like no other. He is distinct from creation, and He stands over creation as Lord. He is utterly unique in His being, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally existing in one perfect nature. The triune God is blazing in His holiness, perfect in His righteousness, glorious in His majesty, awesome in His power, abounding in steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who formed the earth and made it, I am the Lord and there is no other, Isaiah 45, 18. And He is not only distinct and transcendent, He is also personal and moral. He is the covenant Lord, who reveals himself to his people and enters into covenant with them. He creates humanity to live in covenant relationship with him, a relationship of loyal love, trust, and faithfulness. He is, as he revealed to Moses in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Friends, God's holiness and His righteousness form the standard for a moral universe. We live in a theistic moral universe ruled by a just judge. And without the foundation of God's retributive justice, the foundation for a moral universe would collapse. And unlike what the honor-shame missiologists claim, the righteous judge of all the earth will leave no sin unpunished. He could not. He will by no means clear the guilty. Which brings us to the next step in our biblical gospel recipe, man. The Lord created human beings in His own image, according to His likeness, for His own glory. God placed Adam and Eve in a perfect garden paradise to live in covenant relationship with Him under His rule and blessing, to serve Him as royal priests, to be fruitful and multiply and extend the dominion and worship of the true and living God to the ends of the earth, and they were both there naked and not ashamed." 
In the garden, God also established his command. Genesis 2.17, of any tree you may eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Not only does God reveal his command, he also spells out the consequence of disobedience. The penalty for disobedience is the punishment of death. We all know that the story takes a dark turn next. Adam and Eve, deceived by the serpent, rebelled and transgressed, violated God's command, and immediately they are guilty before the divine judge and king. As a result of their guilt, they are ashamed of their nakedness, alienated from God and from one another. And as a result of their guilt, they are now afraid. Slavery to fear, slaves to Satan, sin, and death. Friends, the shame and fear of Genesis 3.7 and Genesis 3.10 flow, arise from the objective guilt of disobedience in Genesis 3.6. Follow the biblical logic logic here. Law, judicial sentence of condemnation, death as the penalty, the punishment for violating that law, brings about guilt, and this results in shame and fear. And Adam's trespass has led to condemnation for all Adam's children, as Romans 5 tells us. Friends, this is crucial. It doesn't matter what culture we're in. We come into this world condemned and corrupt, dead in our trespasses and sins, under Satan's dominion, by nature children of wrath. We are depraved, damned, doomed, and we know it. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Paul, speaking of the Roman pagan world in Romans chapter 1 and verse 32, speaking of the pagan world, he says, they know the righteous decree of God that those who practice such things deserve to die. Did you hear that? They know. We know. Deep down, we all know our guilt before Almighty God, our judge. And that's true from Sun Valley to Singapore, from Los Angeles to Laos, from Bangkok to Bangalore. They know the righteous decree of God that those who practice such things deserve to die. We know that we stand condemned before him. And so to pacify our guilty consciences, to cover our rightful shame, to forget our frightful predicament in further rebellion, fallen human cultures, further deceive ourselves. We invent idolatrous worldviews and value systems, fallen community standards of honor and shame that are at odds with what Scripture calls honorable and shameful. Friends, Genesis 3 reveals that death is the judgment of God against human sin. Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God. God responds with retributive justice. Exile from His presence, pain and hardship of life in a fallen world, and death and eternal punishment. And if God so willed, the Bible could have ended right there. But praise be to God, it didn't. He didn't leave us there. And that leads to the third step in this gospel recipe, redemption. The Lord promises to bring forth an offspring of the woman 
who will crush the serpent's head, and then God begins to unfold his plan. Fallen Adam and Eve, you know, as soon as they fell, they instinctively invent a false honor-shame religion of fig leaves to artificially cover their shame. But their guilt remained. God slays an animal to pay for their guilt and cover their shame. Adam and Eve felt, smelled, and saw death. They were clothed in it. If shame was the root issue, the fig leaves would do just fine. Why these bloody garments of skin? But if guilt and punishment are the root issue, then you need the sacrifice that only the Lord can provide. And as we read the rest of the Old Testament, the punishment of death for sin and the offering of substitutionary sacrifice informs everything. Now think of Passover, Exodus chapter 12. The Lord passes in judgment over Egypt. Israel's firstborn sons are spared while the Egyptian firstborn sons die. What is the basis for the Israelites being spared? They too were sinners. They too are deserving of death. They too stand condemned because of Adam's trespass, just like the Egyptians. God has a legitimate claim to judge Israel and claim the lives of the firstborn. Why didn't he? The Passover lamb takes the penalty of death in their place. The judicial categories of guilt and righteousness then are further developed through the Mosaic covenant and law. And at the heart of the old covenant is the Levitical sacrificial system where all of the sacrifices together demonstrate what is required for sinners to live in the presence of a holy God. They vividly display, as one person says, that the way to God is through a bloody knife and a burning altar. With every sacrifice, the worshiper places his hand on the head of the animal, leaning on it, indicating substitution, showing a transfer of guilt, and then the judicial sentence of death falls on the sacrificial animal instead of the worshiper. On the annual Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16, right at the center of the book of Leviticus, at the center of the entire Pentateuch, one goat sacrificed to propitiate God's wrath by its blood, giving purification of sin, providing access into his presence. The other, Leviticus 16 verse 21, the high priest lays his hands on this goat's head, confesses the sin, sins of the nation, and then that goat was driven out, the scapegoat, driven out into the wilderness, symbolizing substitution, bearing the punishment of exile, banishment from the presence of God, carrying sin far away. And through it all, God is teaching his people, creating categories for his people, creating structures of redemption that catechize the entire sacrificial system every day in their faces, screaming, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And yet those sacrifices, all of them were insufficient. They were only types and shadows. No, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away our sin, nor a thousand offerings could make us clean within. 
Those sacrifices were like a credit card. They just stack up the debt and put it off. None of them changed the people's hearts. None of them solved the problem of sin. And eventually, for their idolatrous rebellion, Israel faced the covenant curses. And they were exiled from the land just as Adam and Eve were exiled from Eden. But God continued to speak his word of promise. He promises restoration. And throughout those promises, we see this enigmatic figure who is vividly brought to us in Isaiah 53. This servant of the Lord standing in the place of God's covenant people by his sacrifice, making atonement for their sins. The servant of Isaiah 53 is righteous. He deserves no suffering, but he willingly and obediently suffers. God himself acts to lay the people's sin upon the servant to punish him in their place. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. All of the Old Testament teaches us, brothers and sisters, only God can save us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord must act to appease his own wrath. And yet, we need a substitute. We need a representative. We need a new and better Adam who can stand in our place. Which leads to the final culminating step in our biblical gospel recipe. The ingredient that makes the dish what it is. Christ. And we marvel as the law and the prophets and the writings find their fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son himself, only God can save us, took on flesh. We need a new and better Adam, truly God, truly man, for our redemption according to the perfect plan of the triune God. I could multiply texts here. We could look at all of Hebrews, but I'm going to look at just a couple to prove our point. Key to understanding the cross are the accounts of what comes before the cross in Gethsemane, what we see in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke. In Gethsemane, Jesus is, as Mark puts it, chapter 14, verses 33 and 34, here are the words. Jesus says he is deeply distressed. He says in Mark's Gospel that he is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You know, all through history, you can see several martyrs. Look at Christian history and look at the martyrs in the early church. They went to their deaths celebrating with joy that they had been counted worthy to suffer. Or you could even look at non-biblical history and martyrs for various causes who die bravely. Why is Jesus distressed? Why is he in such agony if the only purpose of his death was to show honor to God? He asks his father, remove this cup from me. And the cup that Jesus asked to be removed from him is the cup of God's wrath that he must drink. See, throughout the Old Testament, this cup speaks of God's wrath. Think of Psalm 75 verse 8. In the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed. 
and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Jesus drank the cup, saying, not my will, but yours be done to his father. He drained the cup of the wrath of God Almighty, bearing the just punishment for our sins. Consider another key text. Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have failed to honor God. We have broken God's laws. Think back to Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. We know the righteous decree of God that those who practice such things deserve to die. The wrath of God burns against sinners and yet God justifies the ungodly. Declares us righteous by His grace as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. How does He do that? Well, Paul tells us through the redemption that is in Christ. Jesus paid the price that bought our freedom from guilt. Well, how was this price paid? Paul tells us God put forward Christ as a propitiation in his blood to be received by faith. By his sacrificial death, Jesus turns away God's righteous wrath from us by taking it upon himself. And the crucial question in this text that we must not miss is this. How could a just and righteous God, the judge of all the earth, justify, declare sinners to be righteous? How is it that he passed over the sins of his people under the old covenant, even though the blood of bulls and goats could never take away their sin? The answer is that God's righteous judgment was poured out on Christ. In his death as a propitiatory sacrifice to be received by faith. Maybe you're here this morning and you have never received this gift in faith. But you too can receive God's free gift of righteousness by turning from your sin by God's grace and trusting in Christ. And if you're here and that's you, we'd love to talk with you. There's a thousand people here who would love to speak with you <laughs> in the break. Friends, at the cross, God in Christ acts in love to propitiate his own wrath by punishing our sins in the person of Christ. God redeems us from slavery and reconciles us to himself. Do you see all the themes and images of atonement coalesce here as God's love and his holiness meet at the cross of Christ? The cross accomplishes redemption because... Christ, as our substitute, pays the price for our sin by taking our punishment. The cross effects reconciliation because while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. The cross achieves our justification by fulfilling the righteous demands of God's law. The cross defeats the powers of darkness, granting us victory over Satan because Christ disarms him, removing the basis of accusation against us, the record of death that stood against us. The cross furnishes an example for us to follow by displaying the supreme example of sacrificial love as the Son of God offered himself on behalf of sinners. And the cross covers our shame 
and satisfies God's honor because the punishment has been borne for those who have dishonored their almighty king. Holding all these themes together is the gospel and the logic of penal substitutionary atonement. The cross of Christ will not lend itself to a multiplicity of interpretations. Nor is penal substitution simply one theory among many other ways that we can speak of the atonement. No, penal substitution is the biblically revealed heart of the gospel. It is the central essence of Christ's atoning sacrifice without which none of the other biblical metaphors stand. It is the dramatic plot twist that makes sense of the story. It is the melodic line that carries the tune of the song. It is the linchpin without which the entire mechanism of atonement fails and falls apart. The honor-shame missiologists claim that we must see the cross through multiple perspectives, but they fail to see the authoritative perspective of Scripture itself. In their gospel according to honor and shame, they jettison the biblical judicial categories of law, guilt, retributive justice, and righteousness, thus failing to present God's provision of our Lord Jesus Christ as our righteous wrath-absorbing substitute. The tail begins to wag the dog. Cultural accommodation replaces biblical proclamation as they exchange the glorious heritage of the faith once for all delivered to the saints for a pathetic red stew of a falsely contextualized half gospel. By relativizing and redefining penal substitution, these missiologists represent half-truths as the whole truth, thus resulting in a complete and damning untruth. And to fail to present penal substitution as the heart of the gospel not only obscures clearly revealed biblical logic, but also fails to answer the fundamental question of both the Bible and of all human existence in every culture. How can a man be right before God? So that's the answer to question number three. We've seen what the honor-shame missiologists say. We've talked about how we should do theology. We've talked about how we should do a theology of the cross. And now with our biblical lenses on, we can talk about honor and shame. How must we proclaim the cross in honor-shame cultures? That's question number four. Perhaps through all of this you've wondered, so what is the role of honor and shame? You know, and if you read carefully enough, you'll find the Bible is full of honor and shame. Indeed, the Bible was written in a Middle Eastern honor and shame culture. So are the honor and shame missiologists on to something then? Well, yes, even a stopped clock is right twice a day. <laughs> These missiologists rightly observe that honor and shame are really in the Bible and are a reality in the world's cultures. Do we then lose Scripture's honor and shame by holding to penal substitution? As Paul would say, by no means. In fact, the categories of honor and shame are actually fruitful when rightly understood and rightly applied from within the biblical framework. That's what the honor and shame missiologists get wrong. They fail to see how different the Bible's framework of honor and shame is from any given culture's understanding of honor and shame. In most cultures, honor and shame flow from community ideals and social standing. People treat honor and shame as community-based, horizontal in nature. What's most important is one's social rank. 
But friends, culture is the product of fallen human beings. Image bearers of God, yes, but fallen image bearers. Every culture has been tainted by the fall and expresses our sin, our rebellion against God, our deficiency in different ways. In our fallen nature, we seek to assert our autonomy apart from the lordship of God. We're born into this world as sinners by nature, and together with other sinners, we form customs, traditions, habits, every culture doing what is right in our own eyes. And fallen human cultures define honor and shame as they see fit, but the writers of the Old and New Testaments would call their very definitions shameful. For example, there's nothing honorable about the so-called honor killings. Nor was the response of Rupa's family honorable. It was, in fact, shameful from a biblical standpoint. And while Rupa might be viewed with shame by her community, she has lived honorably in the sight of God. Need I say this in Pride Month? The world bestows and celebrates, bestows prideful honor on sexual deviancy. God calls it shameful. You see, in Scripture, honor and shame are God-centered. They are primarily vertical, referring to our right standing before or otherwise before God. Biblically, honor is tied to God's glory. God is worthy of honor and obedience as creator and Lord. Sin is the failure to honor his lordship by distrusting and disobeying his commands. Shame is our experience of dishonor and alienation from God that results from sin specifically because we stand objectively guilty under the sentence of condemnation having broken God's commands. And those who live in sin and rebellion will face eschatological shame. They will stand condemned in the final judgment and experience God's wrath. While a culturally defined notion of shame is experientially confusing and misplaced. The biblical concept of shame is tied inextricably to objective guilt. And so the answer to honor and shame cultures is not to jettison the biblical model of penal substitution in favor of something new, but to define honor and shame as the Bible defines them and present the atoning work of our Lord Jesus Christ in its complete biblical framework. So in any culture, we evangelize by helping people see their objective guilt and condemnation before the living God because of their failure to honor him and for their transgression of his law. We appeal to the innate knowledge of all human beings that they have fallen short of the glory of God, that the wrath of, wrath of God burns against them, that they know the righteous decree of God that those who practice such things deserve to die. We appeal to that, that they've suppressed. We use words like shame and honor in the same way that the Bible speaks of them. And we speak to them of God's amazing love and grace in sending his own son to redeem sinners. We tell them that at the cross, Jesus bore the punishment for our guilt by suffering under God's righteous wrath the only one who perfectly honored God in every way, the only one who is worthy of infinite honor, was stripped naked, 
beaten and abused, mocked and put to open shame in his earthly community. But he despised that shame and endured the cross, looking forward to the joy that was set before him and the honor that would be bestowed upon him. While the world thought that Jesus was being put to shame, he was putting the world to shame. The good news of the gospel is that all who turn from their sins and put their trust in Jesus will be saved. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Our hope does not put us to shame. And we then appeal to our friends to disregard the shame and disgrace that they face in their community for confessing Christ. We remind them, as 1 Peter 4 verse 16 says, that if anyone suffers as a Christian, they are not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in that name. We encourage them that as members together in a blood-bought new covenant community and family, we will bear their sorrows and mistreatment with them. And as we do that, we exhort one another that it is more important to honor God than to receive honor from men. So let us go with Jesus outside the camp and bear his reproach. Friends, there are no culturally plausible categories for the cross, contrary to what Jason Georges says. The message of penal substitution is divinely designed to be scandalous to some cultures and foolishness to other cultures. But the gospel turns every culture on its head and creates a new culture among citizens of a heavenly country. So, brother pastors, if you're here and you're a pastor today, I want to admonish you. Take responsibility for what the missions agencies teach, for what your missionaries teach, for what is being taught on the field by those you support. Look into how missions agencies train the people that you send. Examine their training curriculum. Hold them accountable. Don't fall for the false idea that you need to leave this to the experts. You are responsible for what your missionaries teach, brother pastor. Missionaries and missions agencies in the room, beware what you teach. Beware what ideas you imbibe. Be faithful in proclaiming the whole counsel of God. Remember that at the cross, God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. He has put to shame both Jew and Greek, Chinese and American, Indian and African, and our faith must not rest on the contextualization of men, but on the power and wisdom of God. Those of you who are aspiring to go, study to show yourself approved rightly handling the word of truth. Learn good exegesis and how to do it. Study biblical theology, historical theology, systematic theology. Equip yourself to proclaim the cross. Woe to us if we do not proclaim the cross. We must proclaim the gospel of penal substitution, of Christ crucified for sinners. We proclaim Christ, our substitute, whom God provides as a sacrifice, thus clothing us with garments of righteousness. We proclaim Christ, the only begotten Son of God, 
whom the Lord provides as a sacrifice on the mountain of the Lord. We proclaim Christ, the Passover lamb, who takes away the sins of the world. We proclaim Christ, who offered himself as a fragrant offering, holy and acceptable to God, thus propitiating God's wrath. We proclaim Christ, the sin offering, whose blood purifies us from every sin and permits us to draw near to the living God. We proclaim Christ, the scapegoat, who carried our sins far away, facing the banishment of exile on our behalf into the far place. We proclaim Christ, the new and better David, who cried out on our behalf, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is the suffering servant who was pierced for our transgression. Upon him fell the chastisement that we deserve. We proclaim Christ our Lord, our Savior, hanging naked and ashamed on the cross, having become a curse for us, suffering for us, pouring out his blood, drinking the cup of God's wrath down to its dregs until he cried out, it is finished. And we proclaim Christ until that day when people from every tribe and tongue and nation will be assembled around him in glory, forever transfixed on his beauty and crying out, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the lamb, for you were slain and you ransomed us. And until that day we teach them to sing, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in our place condemned he stood sealed our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, vile, helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a savior. Pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our glorious Savior and the glory of the cross. May we boast only in the cross, proclaim the cross, live under the shadow of the cross, and recognize the beauty of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.